Chapter 9 of The Mind the Paint Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. The Mind the Paint Girl by Louis Tracy. Chapter 9. There was no rest for Lily Paradell that afternoon. The unusual attitude Jays had seen fit to adopt had frightened and distressed her a good deal more than he had any inkling of. She felt, too, in an uncanny way, that some new influence had come into her life. It seemed as if she had suddenly grown older. This was her twenty-third birthday. Tomorrow her age would be twenty-three years and one day. Already she was in her twenty-fourth year. Twenty-four! She was counting in that lachrymose fashion. Why, at that age, most of the nice girls she knew were either married or thinking seriously of matrimony. Was she an exception to that rule? Or was it really true that she was destined to marry Nico Jays? Did she want to marry him? Come now, answer that question honestly. Well, if it must be answered, no. A thousand times, no. Did she want to marry anybody? No, not yet, but when the time came that she must decide, once and for all, the gravest problem that can present itself to a woman, what sort of man would she select as a husband? Again, the image of Nico Jays became insistent, and tears rose unbidden to her eyes when she discovered, almost with fear, that she could not endure the prospect of sharing the intimacy of married life with Nico. With whom, then? She was acquainted with dozens of eligible young men, some among them only too ready to respond to the slightest sign of her favor. But was there one to whom she could go with that perfect trust and confidence which a wife should place in her husband? Well, perhaps there was one, a man whose adoring glance had never appraised her good looks without bold scrutiny of the restaurant and the street which had often brought an angry flush to her brows and a steely light to her blue eyes. But, heavens above, what would Nico say? Had she really plighted her word to him? She shivered a little at the thought, though instantly came the assurance that she had been perfectly fair with him. They might have been married years ago had he so willed, but he did not. She understood now that he had refused deliberately to entertain the notion of marriage at a time when she would have gone to him gratefully, if not with that abandonment of passion to which some women yielded, even if she herself had not fallen a victim to it, yet. And so it came to pass that her maid found her lying in her bedroom, gazing wide-eyed at the ceiling, when she ought to have been dozing comfortably. "'What? Ain't you asleep?' demanded the sympathetic Maud. "'My!' If Mrs. Upjohn knew, she would go on. Then don't tell her, said Lily crossly. Shan't, declared the untidy one. What dress will you wear tonight, my old green? But I mean for the dance. Oh, anything will do. Indeed it won't, and on your birthday too, with no end of a fine spread in your honour. I'll pack your white satin. And please, tell that dresser at the theatre that if she... Will you hold your tongue? broke in Lily. During a few minutes there was silence, in the matter of speech only, since Maud was clattering the doors of wardrobes and causing a dress basket to squeak in torture. Maud! cried Lily suddenly. Yes, miss. At any other time, Maud would have said, Yes, dear. But she had been momentarily quelled by some new quality in her mistress's voice. Just run round to the florist in Tottenham Court Road with a basket of white and pink roses you'll find on the piano. It has Lord Farncombe's card on it. And ask the dear man to oblige me by making it into a bouquet. I shall have plenty of flowers given me tonight. 
I have no doubt, but I fancy those roses. Oh, his lordship will be pleased, and Gladys says he is such a nice young gentleman, cried the maid. As it happens, his lordship will know nothing whatever about it. He won't be there. Can't I have a bouquet made up to my liking without being cross-examined as to the why and the wherefore? Sorry, said Maud. I'll go this minute. Now, lie still, there's a dear. You have plenty of time, and your dress is all ready. You will look a picture to-night. It's such a pity Lord Farncombe can't see you. Lily dawdled in her room till the last moment possible, because she dreaded her mother's questioning, especially when Ma set eyes on the dismantled basket and learnt its reason. She could not guess that Mrs. Upjohn, uneasy in mind because of the plot to oust Jays from the party, was secretly anxious to avoid uttering a word about it. Least said, soonest mended was one of the late lamented Upjohn's pet aphorisms. Consequently, if the captain made a row tomorrow on account of his exclusion, Ma wished to have Lily, at least, as a witness that the matter was never discussed between them. So they kissed and parted without any reference to the bouquet, but Maud had confided to Mrs. Upjohn full details of the visit to the florists long before Lily's car had reached the theatre. Luigi, the presiding genius at Catani's, had given the best of his unrivaled skill to the preparations for the night's amusement. Helped by several trained waiters and a small army of stagehands pressed into service for the hour, he converted the foyer of the theatre into a sumptuous supper-room. Within a few minutes after the last playgoer had quitted the dress circle, the spacious refreshment room was swept and garnished with additional furniture, hangings, and flowers. Four round tables were laid for a supper party of twenty-six, and the bar counter was converted into a sumptuous sideboard. Luigi himself, a little dark, active man, seemed to be everywhere at once, and his deft-handed myrmidons were working like navvies when Maurice Cooling, the Pandora's business manager and general factotum, strolled in after casting up the night's accounts. He was obviously surprised by the metamorphosis already effected. It is an unwritten law in the theatrical world that its coolings shall be of imposing presence. They are never seen except in immaculate evening dress. They wear the shiniest of silk hats and display vast expanses of shirt front. This particular representative of the tribe in no wise departed from its traditions, either in manner or appearance. He was tall and portly and bent over the diminutive Italian with a ponderous air of approval. By Jove, Luigi, he said. You have soon made a change here. Evidently you study stage settings in your profession the same as we do. Let me see now. I have a plan of the table somewhere, and cards with the guests' names on them. Ah, here we are. And he produced the exhibits from a pocket. Shall I interfere with your arrangements if I go round and allot the various people's seats? Not in the least, sir. Everything is ready. I hope you think the tables look nice. While speaking, Luigi made some cabalistic signs with his hands, and every waiter disappeared as though by magic. Not bad, said Cooling, absorbed in the work of sorting out the cards. Not half bad. Now, I mustn't mix things. Colonel Stidoff and Miss Conifee. Where are you, Miss Conifee? Oh, there you are, my dear. And he stooped across one of the tables. Luigi smiled. He would have sorted out the cards of the dexterity of a conjurer, but leaving Cooling to the task, he too vanished. Roper bustled in from an outer landing. "'Hello, Maury!' he cried, cutting a caper. 
a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And how are you tomorrow? Hello, Lal, said Cooling, deep in his study of the plan and searching seriously for another card. He frowned and seemed inclined to abandon the job for a moment, but apparently made up his mind to go on with it. Roper surveyed the spread with marked approval. He pranced from one table to another and found everything perfect. Splendid, he cried. Satan am I? Which do you make your principal table? This is it. You're at it now, said Cooling testily. Being a big, slow-thinking man, he disliked disturbing influences when occupied in such an arduous duty as the present one. Roper bent and examined some of the cards already placed on the serviettes. Miss Lily Paradell, he read, and his jaw fell. Why, have you gone and put the Baron on her right? Well, what's the objection? demanded Cooling. But where's Farncombe? Where the deuce have you put Lord Farncombe? On the other side, with Dolly Stidolf and Enid. Oh, rats. Cooling was nettled and grieved, to think that he had taken the trouble. Look here, lal, he growled. What do you mean by rats, and why do you come bothering about when one is busy? But my dear fellow, Miss Paradell is the heroine of the party. The seat next to her is the seat of honour. Exactly so, and that's why I've put the Baron there. Isn't he a distinguished foreigner? And with things as they are between England and Germany. Oh, below Germany. If Germany doesn't like it, she must lump it. Lord Farncombe's eldest son of an earl. You can't get over that. Besides, the Baron is sweet on Enid just now. I'm sure he'd prefer. Cooling sorted out a card ungraciously. Oh, have it your own way, he said. Thanks, old man. Sorry I was shirty, muttered Roper. But the bulky manager of the Pandora harbored another grievance against his interfering friend, who must be crushed forthwith or the tables would never be arranged in time. He laid down the plan and cards and extracted a letter from his waistcoat pocket. By the by, lol, he said, adjusting a pair of pants nay. The fair lily... The heroine of the party, as you call her, is in a pretty tantrum over the whole business. Somebody has gone and mixed things nicely. It isn't my fault. What's up now? demanded Roper, craning his neck to peer at the letter which Cooling was unfolding. Listen, my boy, I had this from her ten minutes ago. It is headed, My Dressing Room, 1115. Eighty degrees with the windows open. I should think so indeed. If the thermometer registered her temperature, it must have been nearer 160. My eye, what's wrong? cried Roper, though his heart misgave him, for he guessed what was coming. You'll soon know. And the big man began to read, Maury, you pig. Whereupon Roper whistled, Maury, you pig. I should feel deeply indebted to you if you would kindly inform me why the devil you went out of your way to deceive me last night. You led me to suppose, and so did that lying worm, Lal Roper. Cooling paused impressively and glanced at the stockbroker over the rims of his glasses. Do you hear? That's you, he said. Oh, Lord, muttered Roper. Cooling resumed his reading, mouthing each word with much gusto. 
that lying worm Lal Roper. Uncle Lal bridled and flushed. All right, he said stiffly. You need to rub it in. She means me right enough. His friend, satisfied with the point scored, took up the thread of the letter again. You both led me to suppose that this rotten banquet was to be a family gathering of the ladies and gentlemen of the Pandora Theatre, and no outsiders asked. Now I find that only three or four men of the company are invited, and I hear from Nita Trevana that several of the boys are to be laid on for the occasion. The result is, you have made me tell a regular whopper to a particular friend of mine with regard to this affair. Oh, crikey! Nico Jays! breathed Roper. Which I will never forgive you for, read Cooling. Neither you nor Lal Roper. As true as I am alive, I have a jolly good mind not to show up, but to put on my old rags and go straight home. You are two cats. So take it out of that, and believe me always yours, affectionately, Lil. Roper began to hop about the room. Remain still, he could not, for speech invariably galvanized him into action. Well, I'm blessed, he groaned, realizing that if there was one thing worse than having Lily's opinion read to him, it was to receive it from the lady herself when next they met. Cooling returned the letter to his pocket. It's a tasty document, isn't it? he said, thoroughly gratified at sight of Roper's distress. A lying worm and a cat, gurgled the little man. And from Miss Lily Margaret Upton. Now, who'd have thought it? Have you done anything about it? No, I waited for you. You are responsible. What I did last night was simply to oblige a pal. I had better run round her dressing room and try to smooth her down, hadn't I? said Roper irresolutely. Cooling went on, ostentatiously sorting out cards. Perhaps you had, he said. Then he added, apparently as an afterthought, Why you wanted to mislead the girl, I can't for the life of me understand. Roper flared up instantly. It was bad enough to have ugly things written about him by Lily Paradell, but he considered it the height of ingratitude on Cooling's part to reproach him with a mismanaged scheme in which they had shared equally. Damn it all, he cried. You agreed that that sulky brute, Jays, would be what the Baron calls him a wet blanket. You blew a hot and cold, you do. And what's more, I didn't notice that Lily omitted your name from her choice communication. There you go, more filthy temper, said Cooling calmly. If ever I assist in getting up another party, began Roper in a rage, but he checked the outburst when Carlton Smith entered. Instantly, he was all smiles, and tragedy gave place to low comedy in his manner. Hello, Carlton, he cried. Here we are again, all change for Oxford Circus. Oh, lol, said Smith, helping to titivate the place, I see. Where are you off to? because Roper was making for the door. I want to have a word with Lily Paradell. And the stockbroker fled. He had no desire whatever to let Smith into the secret of Lily's annoyance, because the proprietor of the Pandora might have disapproved strongly of any discrimination being exercised against the leading lady's friends without her knowledge. How are you tonight, chief? Said Cooling, fumbling in a pocket and producing a long slip of paper. What do you think of that for tonight's house, and the weather dead against us? 
Smith smiled his approval of the figures. Capital, he said, but there's no bad weather for a good play. I'll go and have a wash and brush up. He turned to the door but should have made his escape a moment earlier, because a number of men whom he was compelled to greet affably sauntered in. He had just got clear of them when de Castro appeared and buttonholed him promptly. I say, Carlton, whispered the newcomer mysteriously. I have been in front again tonight. It's magnificent, marvellous. Smith gazed resignedly at the convertible diamond stud blazing in de Castro's shirt. It'll do, he agreed. I shall get a couple of years out of it. I just want a wash and brush. But de Castro held him firmly. There's only one little improvement I'd like to see, if I may suggest it. What's that? Keeping hold of Smith's coat until he had linked an arm, de Castro sank his voice even lower. You're sure you won't consider me presumptuous? My dear fellow, of course not. It's very kind of you. De Castro brought his mouth as close as possible to Smith's ear, standing on tiptoe for the purpose. If you could give Gabs, Miss Catho, a tiny bit more to do in the second act, he confided. Oh, yes, yes, nodded Carlton. She's a little lump of talent if you only realized it, a perfect little lump of talent. Smith disengaged himself gently and tried to get away. I'll think it over he said pleasantly, but de Castro followed him up. Will you, an extra thong, that's all it needs to be, just one extra thong. Oh, it will be such an improvement. Seeing von Rettenmeer coming, he thought to strengthen his claim somewhat, if only by the merest hint of the attaché's agreement with his own views. Ah, oh, here's the Baron, he lisped. We've been sitting together, I and the Baron. Then he caught Smith's hand and wrung it warmly. Thanks, thanks. I'm awfully obliged. Glad to see you, Baron, said Smith, turning to von Rettenmeier. The blonde German bowed. So good of you to have me, he said. Well, excuse me now. I'm just going to wash my hands, began Smith, but his star was not in the ascendant in that hour because von Rettenmeier also detained him. Pardon, one moment he said, lowering his guttural voice to the same confidential note as that adopted by de Castro. May I dug the liberty of indulging in a little criticism of your excellent play? Certainly, said Smith, with that wonderful smile of his, which promised so much and meant so little. Come here, and the baron drew him away from the tables. De second act, his manner was so serious that the proprietor of the Pandora was actually beguiled into taking some notice of it. The second act, he repeated. The part where the charming Miss Paradell is changing her costume. Yes, yes, was the answer. That's where the piece requires lifting, lifting. And he accompanied the words with an expressive gesture. Lifting repeated Smith, now decidedly puzzled. So, the comedians are clever, extremely clever. And again, a wheedling arm caught the managers. But if you could see your way clear to give Enid, Miss Moncrief, another dance. Ah, uh, just so. It was evident now how the piece was to be lifted. It would remove the solidary imperfection, pursued the Baron. I'll think it over promised Smith, releasing himself once more. 
I'm just going to wash my hands. We'll talk about it later. Shudston dunk, cried von Rettenmayer, confident that he had, at last, gained his point. But the hapless smith only contrived to run full tilt into two new arrivals, Colonel the Honorable Arthur Stidolf and his wife. Mrs. Stidolf, a mature but still beautiful woman, was dressed in the height of fashion and wore rather too many jewels. The material of her evening gown was of the exact tint of her skin, and the effect of the diamonds sparkling on the corsage was rather startling until one perceived that they were not pinned on her flesh, but secured in the ordinary way. Colonel Stidolf looked a little more faded, a little more weary than on the day when Nico Jays met him outside St. James Palace, but his wife was still, as ever, Dolly Enzor, and she greeted Smith with a kiss, following up the somewhat pronounced method of showing her pleasure by saying affectedly, "'How lucky that I'm able to come to you tonight. It's so difficult to catch me in the season.' "'Have you been in front?' asked her old employer, easily evading this artless desire for sympathy because of the excessive demands of society on her time. Instantly her manner changed, and her stilted voice took on a note of boredom. "'Yes, oh yes.' Smith understood that sort of reply from one who had been in the profession. "'What? Don't you like it?' he cried, genuinely surprised. "'Oh, I don't say I dislike it.' And Mrs. Didolph shrugged her plump shoulders affectedly. "'But one can't forget what one used to do here in the old days.' Her husband, who could never accustom himself to Dolly Enzor's social lapses, broke in graciously, if rather nervously. "'I've had a most enjoyable evening, Carlton. The performance is so bright, so very bright. It quite takes one out of oneself.' Mrs. Stidolph was moved to sneer at him. "'Oh, anything pleases you,' she said with an unpleasant guffaw. "'You'd laugh at Punch and Judy.' "'I'm just running away to wash my hands,' explained Smith. "'You know, von Rettenmayer?' And he caught the Baron's eye despairingly. "'Know him?' cried Mrs. Stidolf. "'Why, he was about in my time. My dear Carl!' Von Rettenmayer's heels clicked loudly, and he doubled up in profound obeisance. "'My dear lady,' he murmured. "'What blitz!' The pestered smith was actually halfway through a set of folding doors when he encountered Fulkerson and Farncombe. Fulkerson, who had been dining extensively and whining no less, introduced Lord Farncombe with much ceremony, and Smith seemed to be in for another conversation when Fulkerson, espying Mrs. Stidolf, created a diversion by hailing her uproariously. "'By Jove, if it isn't Dolly Ensor, he cried. "'What cheer, Dolly!' and he hurried up with outstretched hand. Mrs. Stidolf thought it high time to assert her dignity. She gave him a stiff little nod and said coldly, "'How do you do, Mr. Fulkerson?' For a second or two, he was actually abashed. "'I, oh, oh I'm pretty middling. I hope you're the same,' he stammered. Farncombe, who had been watching him, was obviously disconcerted, and Smith explained to him, too, that his hands needed washing, but only found himself face to face with Gabrielle Cato, a pretty young woman whose fretful little face was expressive of extreme dissatisfaction with the world. She looked at him spiritlessly. "'This is a treat,' she drawled. "'Why, you haven't been to see us for ages.' "'I see you all far oftener than you suspect.' said the cunning smith. Do you? That is sly of you. 
he literally forced a waiter out of his path. I'm just going to have a wash and brush up, he shouted. Really, murmured Gabrielle. My, but you are full of news. By this time, the foyer was alive with movement and chatter. Most of the guests had arrived, and Luigi was making final disposition of his corps of waiters. Fulkerson, evidently regarding himself as master of the ceremonies, dragged Ward Farncombe hither and thither, introducing him to various persons present. Whether they were members of the company or not, it was all the same to Fulkerson, who knew everybody and embarrassed the young Viscount greatly by announcing his name and title in a high-pitched voice. A band of musicians on the landing proclaimed their fell intent by the scraping of violins and the grunts of a cello, but Cooling hurried to stop a premature outburst since the guest of the evening had not yet arrived. He was met at the door by Roper, and the little man was very hot but beaming all over. "'It's all right,' he muttered in a stage whisper. "'She'll be round in a minute.' "'Amiable,' inquired Cooling anxiously, for he too did not look forward with delight to his next meeting with Lily." Angelic, my boy. She's wearing a new dress, and that's taken her mind off it. Oh, her bark's always worse than her bite. I knew it'd blow over. Roper pursed his lips and threw out his chest formidably. Moy, but I've given her such a talking to, he declared. Cooling grinned at him and beckoned to the leader of the band, to whom he gave some directions. But Roper was not now to be depressed by his friend's skepticism and bustled cheerfully into the throng in the middle of the room. Special edition, all the winners, Piper! He called in the ruckus voice of a street news vendor. Lightest cricket scores, Piper! Hello, Dolly, Nita, Gabs, Daphne! Ah, there you are, Farncombe. You too, Colonel. How's everybody? Enid Moncrief, a long, spare-figured girl, exquisitely gowned, who walked with the sinuous grace of a dancer, came in at that moment, followed by some of the chief actors. Von Rettenmeyer rushed to meet her, took her hand, and kissed it with fervor. Ah, Miss Moncrief, he said. Your dancing was more surprising tonight than ever. But Fulkerson had seen Enid and instantly dragged Farncombe towards her. I want to introduce Lord Farncombe, he shrieked. Miss Moncrief, Mr. Tavish, Mr. Shirley, Lord Farncombe. Enid shook hands listlessly and was favoring this new acquaintance with a languishing glance of her dark eyes when Mrs. Stidolf approached. The two women embraced with a pronounced cordiality of hatred. Dolly, dear, sighed Enid. Enid, darling, gushed Mrs. Stidolf. Good gracious, you're becoming an absolute skeleton. Am I? Well, no one can say that of you. But it is a pleasure meeting all you girls tonight, purred Mrs. Stidolf. Of course, one cannot help seeing changes. Ah, said Enid with icy languor. That must be a pleasure. I'm going to scold dear old Carlton by and by, pouted the other. He never gave me a birthday party when I was with him. No, said Enid, and you had so many birthdays here, hadn't you? Mrs. Stiddle's face showed that the arrow had reached its mark, and Miss Moncrief flushed with the triumphant knowledge that, for once, she had discomfited Dolly Enzor. 
Farncombe was aware of the scratching of claws beneath the fur, and Fulkerson almost earned his gratitude by hauling him off in the direction of four statuesque beauties with impassive faces, who had made an effective entrance from the back of the dress circle. But Roper danced ahead of the young men and greeted the elegant quartet boisterously. Hello. Show your tickets, please. Room inside for four. How are you, Flo? How goes it, Sybil? How do you do, Olga? I say, look at Fangie. Then Fulkerson's shrill voice rose above the din. Here, girls, I want to introduce Lord Farncombe, he vociferated. In the midst of all this excitement, the stately manager, Maurice Cooling, had kept his head. Miss Paradell, he announced grandiloquently, throwing wide a pair of double doors and signaling to the leader of the band, which promptly struck up the air of Mind the Paint as Lily entered with Jimmy Birch. She was dressed wholly in white and certainly did justice to Roper's enthusiastic description of her as angelic. She carried Farncombe's bouquet, and the young man's heart throbbed at sight of it. But he was the only one who held aloof while the others pressed around her with welcoming words and outstretched hands. Many happy returns of the day, rose the chorus, and she laughingly warded off the general assault until the valiant Jimmy Birch charged the crowd. For goodness's sake, let us get in, she cried. Better, you idiot, you're on a frock. Do mind her frock. Mind the pint, yelled Roper. A general laugh rose at that, and Lily held the bouquet above her head. Don't crush my roses, she pleaded. Do be careful of me, boys. One at a time. I'm going to shake hands with each of you, but I want to kiss the girls. There was a flutter of embracing and exchange of laughing congratulations until someone cried suddenly, Is the governor? And Smith came in. He too was mobbed, and during that momentary lull, Lily discovered Farncombe standing in front of her. Nita Trevana had not included him in the list of invités. In fact, the girl knew nothing of his coming, which was an afterthought on Roper's part, and for one tranquil instant, Lily gazed at him with frank surprise, extending her hand and smiling carelessly. "'You here?' she said. "'It isn't long before we meet again, is it?' Then she grew conscious that Farncombe was looking at the bouquet she was carrying, and her face and neck flamed into rivalry with the La France roses, only to fly back to the wanness of the white frau Karl Drushka. His flowers! What would he think? Oh, if only the foyer but held a trapdoor through which she could vanish. And what was he saying? Were those some of the roses he had bought her? What a compliment! How he blessed the florist who had recommended them to him. By this time, Carlton Smith had extricated himself. Now, girls, he cried, don't smother me. Where's Lily? Isn't she here yet? Ah, there you are. God bless you, my girl. Many, many happy returns of the day. She went to him and laid her head on his breast. He had invariably been so kind to her that she regarded him almost as a father. He patted her shoulders and brushed her forehead with his lips. Lil, my dear, God bless you again, he said, though not without a flitting thought that the young spark she had been talking to must have said or done something which would account for her half-hysterical state. Well, he continued, gazing round benevolently, what about something to eat? Luigi was waiting for his cue. Ready, Mr. Smith, he cried loudly. Ladies and gentlemen, supper is ready. 
Amidst the general bustle which followed this announcement, no one noticed that one of the waiters, a tall, strongly built fellow, adorned with a mop of vividly red hair and pointed red beard, was gazing at Farncombe as though he would like to strangle him. Waiters, whether red-headed or otherwise, do not, in Britain at any rate, strangle one of the principal guests at a merry-making festival like this birthday party at the Pandora Theatre, while the guests, on their part, seldom pay the least heed to the physical peculiarities of the waiters, whom they regard as mere accessories to the feast, ranking with the furniture and napery. The fun grew fast and furious, the clatter of cutlery and china contended with a volume of eager voices, and the red-headed waiter, who was relegated to the sideboard, became ferociously busy wrenching the corks out of bottles of champagne. End of chapter 9